Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. We've been in the book of Acts. Just a pop quiz, if you've been here, we're, this is now our fourth week. Uh, if you remember, if you've been paying attention, you'll remember that the book of Acts was written, written by a man named Luke. Thank you for those of you who are paying attention. Luke's profession was a, a doctor or a physician, and then Luke writes the book of Acts to a man. Do y'all remember his name? Theopolis. Man, y'all are learning something. How many of you learned something in the last three weeks? And so you can call him Theo, you can call him Phil, you can call him us, but it's Theopolis. And he writes the Gospel of Luke to Theopolis. He writes the book of Acts to Theopolis. So the book of Acts is simply the second installment of the book of Luke. You can read them as a continuum. Remember in the book of Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus began to do and teach. He he begins to tell us what he does through himself. But in the book of Acts, Luke tells us what Jesus continued to do and teach, not through Jesus, but through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the foundational scripture, we're going to read it to you every week because I don't want you to lose sight of why we're doing this. Acts chapter 1, 8. This is Jesus speaking to disciples uh, about a promise that God has given them. This is about 40 days after his resurrection as he ascends back into heaven. He says this, Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And then he also gives them this verse that not only are they going to get this power, but they have to wait for it. We're going to tie all this in today. And it's found in verse four or five. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised. You've heard me speak about. Look at verse five. He says, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is reiterating what John the Baptist said three and a half years prior. When John the Baptist came on the scene, he was baptizing people in the Jordan River. Remember, the crowds began to follow John, and they asked him, are you the Messiah? And in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John answered them. He says, I am not the Messiah. He says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whom his sandals I am not even worthy to untie. He's speaking of Jesus, and this is what he says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus is telling the disciples, this is the moment you've been waiting for. I'm about to leave you. I'm about to send back in heaven, and I'm going to leave something for you. This is a gift that my Father has promised for you. I'm going to baptize you, even as John the Baptist said, with Holy, the Holy Spirit and fire. You've been waiting for this for three and a half years. It's a gift that my Father has promised, but in order for you to get the gift, you can't leave. You've got to stay in Jerusalem. So you remember they gathered in the upper room, and if you paid attention last week, I told you how many were in that upper room. There were how many? 120, y'all are paying so much attention, and they voted, they voted themselves to prayer, and they were in one accord, not a Honda, that means they were, they were unified, and then one guy stands up, y'all remember who he was? Peter, and Peter begins to talk what the scripture said, and then I, I talked last week about the sovereignty of God, if you missed it, go back on podcast and listen to it, and this is going to birth now the early church. We're now 10 days into Jesus left. They're in the upper room praying. Ten days has gone by. This is now 50 days after the initial resurrection of Jesus. 50 days later, Jesus spent 40 days on earth. He leaves. Ten days later, it's 50. And now we pick up Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church. The church is going to get started. And here's how 
It starts Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Go there with me or look on the screen. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And it says, all of them were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other languages or tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, watch this, from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one had heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each one of us hears them in our native language? And then they list 16 of them, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs were all there declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Go back to Acts chapter 2 verse 1, and I'm going to unpack all this, and it says this, when the day of Pentecost came, everybody say Pentecost, I want to preach to you today on the subject of a Pentecostal church, a Pentecostal church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the reading of your word. God, speak through me, speak your words, your heart, your ideas in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. The Pentecostal church, the Pentecostal church. When I said that phrase, some of y'all started getting real nervous, real scared. You're like, oh, oh, what's about to happen in here? I mean, some of you, I know what you're doing. You're looking at the doors right now. Can I, will he notice if I make a break for it right now? Here's a question I do want to ask, because when, when you hear the term Pentecostal, what comes to your mind? I know the second that you hear that term, we all have preconceived ideas of uh, cultures that are attached to that, expressions that are attached to that, uh, rituals that are attached to that, things that we don't understand that are attached to that. So, so some of you, when, as soon as you hear the term uh, Pentecostal, uh, the first thing that comes to your mind is, is speaking in other tongues. You're, man, what is that? I'm not sure what that is. Uh, others of you, you think of more of uh, Pentecostal denominations, and, and you think of uh, long skirts and, and no makeup, and their hair pulled up in what I call bondage, you know, the buns, and you, you think more of that, that it's an expression of, 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 of how they dress, or maybe some of you think of more of uh, legalistic views of when someone says they're, they're Pentecostal of what they can and can't do, and so you think of rules. Some, some of you think of more of the expression of, of what you've seen, uh, that it's a very uh, charismatic uh, approach. It's, it's an expression that is very exuberant. And, and, and you'll think of uh, styles of worship. You'll think of uh, people running around. You'll, you'll think of shouting and shaking and screaming. You'll think about people falling out when the preacher just says, boom, and then everybody goes out and they call it getting slain in the spirit. And you, people have all these preconceived ideas. Some of you, when I said Pentecostal, you thought about snakes. Let me just help you out. I don't do snakes. 
I don't do snakes, I don't do cats. There you go. All right. But the reality is, when we hear this term, I want you to understand that there is no topic or phrase that has become more denominationalized, more culturalized, and more misrepresented in the Bible than the subject of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. It is the most misrepresented portion of Scripture. Why? Because a culture cannot define the role of the Holy Spirit. A denomination cannot define the role of the Holy Spirit. Even personal experience cannot define the role of the Holy Spirit and Pentecost. Only God and God's Word can accurately define what Pentecost is and what it's not. Are you with me? Okay, let me, let me just teach you just for a moment. All this, all this starts in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse, in, in Acts chapter 2, excuse me, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, when the day of Pentecost came. You have to understand that Pentecost was an actual day. This was a, a, a Jewish holiday that had been celebrated for 3,400 years. This just wasn't one day that was randomly picked where God said, oh, today's the day and the Holy Spirit's going to come and people are going to speak in all these different languages and nobody know, is going to know what's going on. This was an actual day before the day of Pentecost came as the way we understand it from reading Acts 2. The day of Pentecost was already there. They were celebrating a Jewish holiday. By the way, this holiday is still celebrated today. If you understand Jewish tradition, there's seven feasts of the Old Testament, seven feasts that practicing Jews still practice today. There, there is the Passover, which we, we, we commemorated some of that during the week of Easter. I'm going to talk about that just in a second. There is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There is the Feast of First Fruits. There is the Feast of Weeks, or it's also called the Feast of Harvest. There's the Feast of Trumpets, which Jews will call Rosh Hashanah. There's the Day of Atonement, which is called Yom Kippur. And there's the end of all this thing. It's called the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booth. I just want to highlight two of them just for a second. Just really pay attention, lean in. The Feast of Passover was something that's been happening since the book of Exodus. Remember when, when Moses speaks to Pharaoh and he says, uh, let my people go, and Pharaoh says no, Moses says, okay, God's going to send plagues. And he sends all these plagues and Pharaoh still doesn't bow. So Moses gives Pharaoh one more warning and he says, bow, bow to God now or the death angel is going to come and kill all of the firstborns in every house. And, and Pharaoh says, oh, including your son, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh doesn't believe it. But he says, the mark of, the, the mark of this will be that whoever has a, who sacrifices a lamb, a Passover lamb, sacrifices the lamb, takes the blood of that lamb, puts it over the doorpost of their home, that family, that child will be spared. And so the death angel does come. He comes in judgment, but those who were under the blood, the mercy of God passed over that house. That's why it's called a Passover. And so that happened. So to commemorate God's faithfulness when you're under his blood and under his grace for 3,400 years, the Jews have been uh, celebrating a feast called the Passover. It's God's mercy when we're supposed to get judgment. Ultimately, Jesus in the New Testament becomes the Passover lamb, and it's because of his blood that we're no longer under the law and judgment, but we're now under grace and love. How many of you thankful that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God? So that is one. The second one I want to talk about is the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest. In, 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 the, New, in the Old Testament, the, 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 the Jews call it Shavuot. In the New Testament, the Greeks call it Pentecost. This is the festival that they're going to be at. It's the festival of Pentecost. The way that it got its name Pentecost, P 
Penta means five, Pentecost 50, Pentagon, five sides. The day of Pentecost happens 50 days after the day of Passover. So this is 50 days later, 50, Pentecost. On this Jewish holiday, pilgrims from all over the world would come to the epicenter of Jerusalem, or uh, of, of um, Israel called Jerusalem. It's the holy city, and they're coming there. It's only one of three festivals where if you were a practicing Jew, you had to come to the city of Jerusalem. People are in the city of Jerusalem for the festival of harvest or Pentecost. Now remember, all these people are there in Jerusalem. Where are the disciples? Jerusalem. Where does Jesus tell them not to leave? Jerusalem. All these people are there. Jesus is there. So you have the 120 that are waiting in Jerusalem during the feast of harvest or the Pentecost. So I want you to get this picture. All of Israel plus many nations, the Bible says every nation is there, is in Jerusalem for this feast called the Feast of Harvest. And Jesus tells his disciples, don't leave until I tell you. Now, this is where I really want to focus on this, this feast. Why do they celebrate this Feast of Harvest? Why do they even celebrate Pentecost? The Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Harvest happens a week of weeks. So a week is seven. A week of weeks was seven times seven. So that's 49. The day after when, when a week of weeks was over, the 50th day, they, after the Passover, they celebrated the ingathering of the wheat harvest. Okay. When you hear Pentecost, this is to Americans what Thanksgiving is. They are celebrating the harvest that was given to them by Jehovah Jireh, their provider. That God has been a good God, and not only has been a good God, but he has provided harvest. Okay, everybody say harvest. So on that day of Pentecost, people from all over the world came to Jerusalem to celebrate one thing, harvest. That's why they are there. And while they're there in the city, and the city was packed with people from all over the world celebrating harvest, it tells us this. When the day of Pentecost came, when the day of harvest came, when everybody from all over the world was in Jerusalem, the celebration of harvest, then God decides to show up. They were all together in one place, and suddenly, everybody say suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind comes in, and they were filled in the house. I love that word suddenly. It means without warning. I want to focus on and drive that word home for a second. The Holy Spirit is free and sovereign and not bound to anyone's thinking or technique. The Holy Spirit will do what the will of the Father suggests that he does. The Holy Spirit doesn't belong to a denomination or a movement. The Holy Spirit is freely his, and the Holy Spirit is always synonymous with the work of Christ. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit shows up, he doesn't draw himself to the Holy Spirit. He pushes people back to Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So suddenly, the Holy Spirit shows up on the scene, and in verse 3, it says, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that were separated or divided, it came the rest on them, and it says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the promise that they've been waiting for from John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 to Jesus' farewell discourse in John 14, 15, and 16. They've been talking about this, okay, there's a Holy Spirit coming. Jesus tells them that this Holy Spirit is a gift from the Father. He says, wait for it in Jerusalem, and they wait for it, and on the day of Pentecost, when thousands of people from around the world are there, that's when God decides to send it. And it says, and the Holy Spirit came. By the way, that word spirit comes from the Greek word pneuma, which means breath. 
It means to breathe life into. Why am I saying this? In Genesis chapter 2, God breathed life into man, and man became a living being. In Acts chapter 2, God breathes breath into the 120, and they become a living church. This is the establishment of the church. It's the first day of the church, and I want you to see this. The first thing that the first church ever does is speak in tongues. Crazy. Look what it says. Verse 4. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay. I know this is incredibly confusing for some of you right now. I really want to speak what this means and what it doesn't mean. Because people have denominationalized this and culturalized this and put their own expression on it. I just want to give you what the Bible says. Okay. What does this even mean that they spoke in tongues? Here, I want you to get this picture. Suddenly... A wind comes in. It's like tornadic activity. It says it was a rushing wind. It comes in on the entire house. The 120 start praying, and it says dividing tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. As this took place, the 120 who are now speaking something they've never spoke before begin to make their way out into the streets. And watch this. And guess who's there? I'm going to read it to you. Now they're staying in Jerusalem where God-fearing Jews from every nation under God. Luke says there were devout Jews in Jerusalem from every nation on the planet. If you look up what it really means, it means every nation. Every single nation was represented on that Pentecost morning. So why were they there? Why were they in Jerusalem? Remember I told you to celebrate the harvest, the feast of harvest, Pentecost. Here's where this gets crazy. Scholars and theologians believe that on that day in Jerusalem, Jerusalem had over 250,000 visitors from different nations, different tribes, different languages, speaking dozens of different languages. So I just want you to get this picture. 250,000 Jews from around the entire world are located in one city on one day, and God just happens to pick that day to send his Holy Spirit that they will speak in every language of every nation that's represented. Are you with me? Okay. So when the Bible says tongues, I want to break this down to you because it means different things at different times. I'm going to do my best today. I'm not going to cover all this today. I want to do my best, so bear with me. So when we get to these tongues, I want you to understand that all throughout the New Testament, the Bible talks about these things called tongues. It's, it's things that literally happen with the tongue. It's linguistic. It's it's sound, it's language that comes from a human being's mouth. From the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, from the conversion of Cornelius in, in, in Acts chapter 10, to Paul in Corinth 24 years later, he's still speaking about this thing called tongues. Now, when you get to 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about speaking in languages that no one can understand. In Acts chapter 2, Paul says, that, or the Bible says that when they spoke, people understand all these different dialects, all these different languages. When, they get to, when you get to uh, the first Corinthians, this is 24 years later, Paul says, I actually speak a language that no one understands. Watch this, first Corinthians chapter 14. He says, for anyone who speaks in tongues does not speak to people, but to God. So there is a difference now between what was happening in Acts 2 and what's happening in Acts, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 14. Instead, no one understands them. They utter the mysteries by the Spirit. Paul later says in verse 14 and 15, for if I pray in a tongue, look what he says, my spirit prays, 
but my mind is unfruitful. So it's not even fruitful to the mind because the mind can't fathom what you're praying because you're not praying in an earthly language, you're praying in a heavenly language. So his spirit is fruitful, but his mind is not. So what shall I do? He says, I pray in both. I pray with my spirit, but I also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my understanding. Then he goes on to say in verse 18, he says this, this is Paul, the apostle. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. So watch this. So 24 days after the day of Pentecost, Paul is telling us that he speaks in a heavenly language that he can't understand and no one can understand, but it makes his spirit man fruitful and edified. And he said, then he says, and I pray this way more than anybody. So in the New Testament, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we see that speaking in tongues is also self-edifying. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay. Also with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says is the gift of the Holy Spirit or gifts of the Holy Spirit. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it's going to list the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gift of tongues and the gift of healing and the gift of prophecy and miracles. And there's so many others. So according to Paul, these are all from the Holy Spirit. So I want you to see this. The Holy Spirit is a gift, right? Wait for the gift. Wait for the gift. That's what Jesus keeps saying. Wait for the gift from my father called the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a gift. And then once you tap into the Holy Spirit, according to Paul, the Holy Spirit has gifts. Okay, are you tracking with me? Now, here's the great debate amongst Christians today. Christian, there's not many Christians believe that the Bible isn't true. So if you believe the Bible, Christians don't believe, not that the Holy Spirit showed up with gifts. The question is, is are they still active today? Does this still work today? And so, so you have two camps. In Christianity, I'm going to tell you about both of them just very briefly. I'm not going to preach about this, but I want to mention to it. So, so I know we have people in both camps here today, so I'm going to do my best to dissect this scripturally. Uh, you have uh, cessationism. These are people in the Christian camp, and they believe that cessationism is basically a Christian doctrine that says spiritual gifts such as speaking in tongues, prophecy, and healing all happened according to the way that the Bible said it happened, but they believe it ceased with the apostolic age, which meant when the apostles died, all this stuff died too. So there's no more speaking in tongues. There's no more gifts of healing. There's no more gifts of prophecy. Uh, reformers such as John Calvin originated this view. So they say, yes, there was tongues. Yes, there was healing. Yes, there was prophecy. But all that died when the apostles died. Okay, that's one camp. The un other camp is called continuationism, which means that the gifts continued. And so this is a Christian theological belief that the spiritual gifts have continued to the present age, specifically healing tongues and prophecy. So this camp still believes in the gifts of God. They still believe in the gifts of the spirit. They still believe it's for today. They still believe in tongues. I'm not going to unpack all this today because this isn't what the text is saying, but I'm going to cover this in some weeks to come. But just so you know, I am a continuationalist. I speak in tongues, just like Paul, every single day of my life. I have to to make it, okay? I'm going to unpack that for you later on, okay? So, but when I pray in tongues, you don't understand what I'm saying. When I pray in tongues, it's for self-edification. The mind doesn't comprehend, but my spirit does. Because just as Paul said, I'm not speaking for man, I'm speaking to God, okay? I want to differentiate that because when the book of Acts chapter 2 says they spoke in tongues, it's not the same tongue that I pray with, that Paul was praying with, where no one can understand it. These tongues could be understood. Okay, so watch this. In Acts 2, this is not the case of self-edification. In Acts 2, 120 people start speaking in a tongue, 
And guess who hears it? The 250,000 there to celebrate Pentecost. So watch this. When they heard the sound, a crowd came in bewilderment because each of them heard their own language being spoken, utterly amazed. And then in verse 8, 9, it tells you all the different languages, uh, the Parthians and the Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia. He names 16 different languages and tribes that are there. So when these 120 start to speak in tongues, they literally start to preach the gospel in another language that they didn't know. In other words, speaking in tongues was a sign that the gospel was for every nation under heaven. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the people that were there. It's for everybody all over the world. If you get nothing else than this today, get this. The gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for the people that you think don't deserve it. Why? Because you didn't deserve it either. The gospel is for everyone. That's why Jesus said in John 3 to a man named Nicodemus, for God so loved the world and he gave his only son that whosoever, whosoever, if you're in this room, you are a whosoever. It's why John the Revelator said when he was speaking of seeing heaven in Revelation chapter 7, he said, after this I looked, there before me was a great multitude talking about heaven and said that no one can count for every nation, tribe, people, and language were standing there worshiping the Lamb of God together. The gospel is for everyone. The love of Jesus is for everyone. Forgiveness is for everyone. Listen to me. Your political views aren't for everyone. Your opinions aren't for everyone. Your mindsets aren't for everyone. But there is one thing that is for everyone. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you understand that it's not just for us, if we just come together on a Sunday and we hoard this thing for us, then we're not a church. We're a country club. It's not just for us. It comes to us so God can get it through us for people that don't know him. So if you go back to the text, these 120 get filled with the Holy Spirit and they start speaking languages that they don't even know. And somebody who has that language hears them and says, what? Can you imagine? You lived your whole life in Ville Platte. Yeah, you know that that was Ville Platian right there. That's what that is. You got your own language. And your whole life you, you, you speak Ville Platian. We're just going to make that up. But you have a neighbor from Russia. Can you imagine if the Holy Spirit fell in your house and you just go out on your port and all of a sudden you start preaching in Russian? That's when you realize the gift is not really for you. It's for those who don't know him yet. Listen to me. Write this down. The baptism of the Holy Spirit comes from God. It is a gift to you, but it's for others. Can I mess with some of our theologies just for a second? Holy Spirit power should never be self-serving, but it's always given for missional empowerment. And there's tribes and camps and denominations that have taken the Holy Spirit and they've made it so me-centric. What can I get? What can I feel? How can I speak? How can I shake? How can it make me feel after this? And, and I understand that. But listen to me. The Holy Spirit was given for one reason and one reason only. The Holy Spirit is given for missional empowerment. Now listen to me. I understand as an individual, he will lead you. He will guide you. He will comfort you. He is an advocate for you. That's all scripture. But when it comes to the power of the Holy Spirit, scripturally, it was given for someone else. Watch this. You will receive power, Acts 1-8, when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my 
witnesses. You receive the power for someone else to be a witness to someone else. When you receive that power, you do it for someone else. Do you see it? Okay, you, you, you still with me? Okay, let me see if I can start bringing this home. In Acts 2, they begin to speak in languages that they don't understand. Why? Because it wasn't for them. It was for the 250,000 that were there. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The Holy Spirit falls, comes in like a mighty rushing wind. Tongues of fire divided on their heads on the 120. They begin to speak in foreign languages. Verse 6 through 11 says all the pilgrims who were there, the 250,000 start hearing this. They run to the house. They run to the streets. What's going on? They hear their language being spoke. Now the upper room party has spread to the streets. And now the people on the streets are starting to respond. Watch how they respond. Verse 12. Amazed and perplexed. They ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, said, they made fun of them because they said, man, they had too much to drink. These dudes have been hitting the sauce. So guess who's going to be the first person to speak up? Who? Yeah, you're going to see this a lot in the book of Acts. Peter. And then it says here again, verse 14, then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Who was the crowd? The crowd is the 250,000 people there to celebrate the harvest. Peter starts preaching to the crowd who's there for harvest. Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. These people are not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Apparently, Peter's never been to Mardi Gras. And he draws a crowd, and he's going to preach the first message of the first church service at the first church ever in the history of the New Testament. Crazy. They have a crowd that is there for the first church service. Now watch this. They do no mass marketing, no social media posts, no flyers, no organizational meeting, no launch team. No nursery team. They don't even have a church name. Hey, we went to church today. Which one? The church. And Peter just starts preaching. We're going to cover this next time we meet. Y'all want to know how the first church service went? Check, this is crazy. He just said, hey, we ain't drunk. Y'all listen to me. That's what he says. Hey. We ain't drunk. We just happy. You want to know why we happy? We got the spirit of the Lord. Y'all want it? Let me tell you how to get it. And he preaches. No microphone. No church building. No nursery ministry. No lights. No organ. No piano. No notes on the screen. No Bible. He preaches in verse 41 says, those who accepted his message were baptized, watch this, and 3,000 were added to their number that day. That means 3,000 people repented. Okay. Can I draw, can I bring this home? Vic, help me out. Acts 2, 250,000 people were there to celebrate the harvest. I don't think they knew that they would become part of the harvest though. Listen to me. Pentecost has always been about harvest. 
Pentecost should always be about harvest. For the Jews, Pentecost was a celebration of the harvest of wheat. Listen to me, Christian. For Christians, Pentecost should be a celebration of the harvest of souls. And biblically speaking, Pentecostal power, I know I'm going to wreck some of your theology, has more to do with the harvest of lost souls than it does speaking in tongues. We're going to get to tongues. I I promise we're going to pack all this. I'm going to tell you everything I know, everything I've experienced. It's going to be amazing. But when you think about a Pentecostal church, I think every church should be Pentecostal. Not because they speak in tongues or they don't, but because they realize there is a harvest out there. There's a harvest of souls. And I don't think, I don't think the mandate has changed the last 2,000 years. I think God is still the God of the harvest. I think it's what the book of Acts is all about. I think it's what Jesus was all about. When I think about Apollosus, I, I think of this one scripture in Matthew chapter 9. I want to read it to you. Watch what he says. When, when Jesus walked through towns and villages, when, when Jesus walked through Apollosus, teaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, Healing every disease and sickness when he, when he saw St. Landry Parish, when he saw Sunset, when he saw Vilplat, when, when he saw Opelousas, he had compassion on them. Why? Because without him, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. It's never a harvest problem. It's always a worker problem. And then he says this. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. God is asking us to go. But before we go, we need power. And the only way that you get the power is to be filled freshly by the Holy Spirit of God. Are you tracking with me? Vic, help me out, please, Vic. Here's my question today. Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you had your own day of Pentecost? I know, I know what some of you are thinking, like, what? I don't know if this is for me. What? Look, 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 this is for us. Remember Acts 1, he told them to wait for what? The promise, y'all remember that? Watch this, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. Peter's still preaching. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There it is. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it says, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. It's for us. We need the promise of the Holy Spirit. How then do we get it? How are you filled? How are you filled daily? How are you filled for the first time? How, how do you get the Holy Spirit in your life? How do, you, how do you get filled and refilled and refilled again? Two, two ways, and I'm closing. Number one, you, you just surrender to God. God, God, I really want to leave Jerusalem right now. Don't leave. Stay. Wait. You have to be obedient to the word of God. God, I'm doing what you're telling me to do. I'm I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Don't leave Jerusalem. It was the command that he gave them. And of all the people in Jerusalem, watch this. The only ones who get initially filled were the ones who, who were initially obedient to stay. Obedience brings the power of the Holy Spirit into your life. The question is not merely, do you have God? The question is, does God have you? And number two, by simply asking God for it. I I ask God a lot of things. And if you don't know what to ask God or where to go, you go to 7-Eleven, watch this. 
Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. 7 11, you're going to remember that. I don't know if I got what I need. Go to 7 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door shall be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give them a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will you give him a snake? Then check out verse 11. If you then, though you are evil, we're evil as human beings, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? Now watch this. This passage is in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and Mark are word for word. Luke changes one word. Look at the word Luke changes. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Matthew says, if you ask him, he'll give you the good stuff. Luke says, if you ask him, he will give you the best stuff. It's called the Holy Spirit. Listen to me, the Holy Spirit is amazing. That's why John said it this way as Jesus. And I will do what you ask in my name, says Jesus, John chapter 14, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, that's a surrender. Keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate. That's the Holy Spirit to help you and be with you forever. It's the spirit of truth. Watch this, John 14, 17, the Holy Spirit is the helper. John 14, 27, the Holy Spirit brings peace. John 16, the Holy Spirit is our counselor. Romans 8, the Holy Spirit helps us overcome sin. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, the Holy Spirit gives us power. I don't know about you, but I need all of those in my life. I need the power to overcome sin. I need power to step out and do what God asks. I need the peace. I need an advocate. I need a guide. I need somebody with me. That is the Holy Spirit. And what Luke tells us, the same guy that wrote the book of Acts about the Holy Spirit is, ask the Father. He wants to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. What am I saying? God is willing to give us a fresh impouring, impartation of the Holy Spirit today. The question is, are we willing to ask? We're looking at this world. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to do anything. As a church, we cannot do what we want to accomplish without the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're struggling with sin, Romans tells us it's the power of the Holy Spirit that helps us overcome sin. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us peace. It's the Holy Spirit who's our guide. He's our advocate. He's our counselor. And today, if you need just a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit, I'm just going to ask you to stand at your feet. Just a fresh touch of him. Amen. Father, thank you for feeling us. Thank you for meeting us, God. We pray that it's not just today, but every day, God, we need a fresh touch, a fresh feeling of your Holy Spirit. God, I thank you for the Holy Spirit. I thank you for his work in this place. But God, let us not just keep it in here. Let us take it to the people that need it the most. Why? Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And God, we're going to change that. God, we are some Holy Spirit-filled workers in this place. We're going to take the message to the streets in Jesus' name. And if you receive that, would you shout amen one last time?